I think this is one of those critically important questions. It doesn't look very Bible-ish, does it? It doesn't look very uh, Christian faith-ish on face value. You know, you could say for most people, the idea of faith doesn't even get close to connecting to the issues of, of the environment. Well, I think it's just so important to de- deal with this. And the reason that I think it's important is because there are so many people who express in this questions deep down disquiet, real discomfort, real fears, actually. What is going to happen in the future? Uh, what is going to happen to this planet, this place in which we live? You know, there is nothing more life and eternity based than that kind of question, is there? Are we doing something? Can we reverse the problem? There's an ancient, sacred, uh, ancient Chinese saying, which is, uh, it's actually, it's a bit of a Chinese curse, really, or it's considered a Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. John F. Kennedy said it down in Cape Town in 1962, I think it was, 61, 62. Uh, JFK said it. May you live in interesting times. We live in interesting times in relation to this issue. 2006, Al Gore uh, promoted um, Stephen Guggenheim, I think it was, who produced the film, An Inconvenient Truth. The issue of climate change, global warming, the issue that we face a real uh, worldwide threat. When you start talking about worldwide threats, when you start talking about uh, leaders, uh, political leaders, almost ignoring all of the small issues and starting to focus on big issues which are worldwide, global issues, threatening the human race type issues, maybe you realize this inconvenient truth needs to be looked into, needs to be addressed. If it is that big, the Bible has got to have something to say about it. Al Gore was talking about that. Uh, From Al Gore right the way through to another group of people who you would have the least expectation, I think, that they would have any interest in this. The Association of Chartered Certified Accountants. That's an interesting group of people for some people. Sorry for any accountants. But, you know, this this is... not exactly the kind of people that you would expect to be concerned about the, the, the environment, eh? Their recent statement said, the linked issues of water and climate change should be fully integrated into corpor- uh, corporates, wider environmental agents. They're saying, look, this is such a big issue. No organization can ignore this. This is so big. You've got to be thinking about this. I think that's, that's just incredible that a group of people who are tasked primarily, I would say, with the, with the governance and financial structure, the future security of businesses, are saying, look, 
Water and climate change need to be just at the top of your agenda. We've seen it in all sorts of ways. It impacts us on a daily basis. If you choose the right car, you don't have to pay tax, road tax, low emissions, low emission cars, low road tax, high emission cars, high road tax. This issue hits us in the pocket. Recycling bins. You know, you go outside and you try, what does this go into? Is it brown, green, orange, blue, whatever your color bins you've got? Which one is it? And you're juggling it around and you know that if you put it in the wrong one, your bins aren't going to be emptied and you're going to get that sticker on the top. It happens on a, on a literally a daily basis, this thing is affecting us. Copenhagen, December 2009. A world splash. The importance of climate issues for the future of humanity. I said that we live in interesting times. Two days ago, the Guardian uh, wrote an article. And they said this in the opening paragraph. It's the dog that didn't bark. The issue that no one feels pressed to talk about. Where in the election battle is the environment. To judge by the manifestos of the three biggest parties, it's a long way down the list. Isn't that fascinating? Here we are, something which in recent years has been declared as the most threatening thing for the future of humanity in the temporary immediate issue of post a recession, recovery, it doesn't even feature really in the political leaders' agendas for today. I think it was something, the, the highest up the agenda in the manifestos, I think, from memory reading the article, was the Lib Dems, where it appear, appeared two-fifths of the way through the agenda. At most, it hardly really appeared. Doesn't that say a lot about humanity? Doesn't it say a lot about our approach to things, things that can seem thre so threatening, so important, so critical, so future-dependent issues, we tend to just let them drift into the future because we want to deal with the pounds, shillings, and pence in our pockets. We want to deal with the immediacy of today. We want to deal with the issues of our jobs uh, well, really, if this is as big an issue as it is, do our jobs matter so much? We live in interesting days. We live in days where uh, the, 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 the great leaders of this world uh, don't seem to have a cohesive response to this. We seem to be shifting from one to the other. You know as well as I do the battles that go on and whether climate change is, almost, is even real. You know, is global warming really happening? Is it so much of a threat? We heard a few weeks ago, James Lovelock is a, a, a great scientist, uh, recognized, world-renowned, recognized uh, authority. He now says, it's too late. It's too late. The planet has had it. It's too late to save this planet. His comments are this. 
he says this, we're, we're not really guilty. We didn't deliberately set out to heat the world. That's one of the things he says. We didn't deliberately set out to heat the world, but you know what? We've pulled the trigger. It's too late. As we built our civilizations, it just happened. He's also saying the world doesn't change its climate conveniently. All the models that we make, all of the, uh, the kind of projections for the future, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. It doesn't change in that way. There's no consistency. There's no patterns. It's too late. And then the most startling thing, renewable technology doesn't really work. <laughs> this is not me. I'm not saying that this is the problem. This is one of the uh, world-renowned authorities who's now saying it's too late. We didn't realize we were doing it, that the, the climate issues aren't going to change the way we expect them to. Oh, and by the way, even what we're doing now to try to address it, it's too late. It doesn't even work. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? Maybe there's some issues there that we need to be honest. We need to say, yeah, in the light of this, how do I answer the question, what about my children? How do I answer the question, what about my children's children? What kind of responsibilities do I have? Does the Bible have anything to say about this? Or is it a case that the world is just heading for some kind of meltdown and God doesn't care if he's even there? Where are we? I think we need to, we need to go back and say, right at this point, I believe the Bible has got lots to say about this. Lots to say. The first thing is understanding the world in which we live. That's the starting point, isn't it? This is all about this world. What, what do we say about the world in which we live? What does the Bible say about the world in which we live? The starting point is this. God created a world which he was pleased with and which he approved of. The, the, the way that the initial accounts of the creation of the world are framed is really important for us to understand what's being said. What it says again and again and again is God was pleased. God said it was good. It is not a small thing for God to say that something is good. You know, I, I've, have you been watching... Um, been watching this Britain's Got Talent has started again, hasn't it? It's uh, one of those hilarious shows where everybody thinks they're fantastic at some talent until they come face to face with this huge audience and the realities of other people who are actually quite good at what they do <laughs> and a set of judges who are there to assess them. And, you know, they, they think they're great while they're singing in their garden shed or, or juggling in the kitchen, and then they appear on this big stage, and suddenly they realize it, maybe they're not quite so good. <laughs> maybe they're not quite as great as they thought at this talent. And then every now and then, you get this little sort of oasis in the middle of a desert. And there is somebody who appears who actually is remarkably good when they're, when they're surrounded by peers uh, and by judges, and when people... Have the, all eyes are on them 
and, and they get up on the stage and they do their thing and actually they're fantastic. Uh, to, be, to be recognized as good in that kind of environment does, has some worth, doesn't it? But for God to say, this world is good. The one who is perfect in everything, the one whose view of beauty, the one whose view of order is impeccable, unquestionable, the one who has that understanding of what good is, what excellent is, what bad is, uh, who understands things that we don't even get close to understanding, for God to say it's good means it is really, really good. So God, in saying that it's good at the beginning, in, in saying that the world in which we live, a world with mountains and trees and flowers and rivers and sky, a, a world like that, God is saying this is a good world. It should be like this. It's a good place for you to be. So God commands the world that he created. I think it's really important. We're made to live in a world like this. It's good for us to live in a world like this. But, but then he, tells, he, ta- he goes on and he explains that the world is, is even more amazing than just good. It reflects me. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. <laughs> the skies proclaim the work of His hands. It's so good that it reflects my glory. That's how good it is. Do you think God cares, therefore, about this world? I think He cares more than we could ever understand about this world in which we live in. Even more that than that, God then uh, makes it the responsibility of humanity to tend and care for His creation. Right at the very beginning, God blesses those who is, He has created, and He says to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. What does, it, what does subdue mean in that context? It means get order to it. Uh, be creative in it. Develop it. Nurture it. Care for it. Rule over the fish of the sea. You are now custodians. You are the carers of this creation. It's as though we are made uniquely by God to care for that which He has made, which He finds good. What a privilege that is. What is your most precious possession? You know, something that you really care about, some sort of object that you care about, and you give it to somebody to look after. You care more about those people in a sense, don't you? If you give it to them to look after, to care for, to nurture, to develop. God gives humanity the world to care for, to develop, to nurture. We ask the question, is it really our responsibility? God says it is. God says that the care of this world, the nurturing of this world, is our responsibility. The management of this world is our responsibility because it's a precious thing to him and and he's been so concerned that it's cared for, he gives it to those who he really has taken a special interest in, those who he has marked as being in his image, human beings. 
So we live in this world in which God has defined it as good, this environment in which God has defined as good. And then before there's any tragedies in the world, God says, now look after it. The problem is that subsequent, subsequent to being told to do that, everything goes wrong. There's a disaster. Uh, And the disaster is quite simply this. That man decides that it is better for me to live independent of God in this environment than dependent upon God in this environment. At the point of that crisis, at the point of that disaster, the impact is not just on humanity, but it's on the world as well. Listen to what God says. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. Is it our responsibility? Are global tragedies acts of God? Well, in one sense, yes. In another sense, where's the root of that problem? The fact that we have decided to ignore God, to reject and live independently of God in this world. And God says, as a result of that, not only is your life shortened, not only are you now going to die, but this world also is cursed. It's breaking down. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. In other words, what God is saying is, look, you now need to understand. We now need to understand. Here we are today, 21st century, millennia after these events, living in a world which is crumbling, which is breaking down, Why is that? The Bible makes it really clear that this is not the world that God would have us live in. But at the same time, it's a world that looks like this that we should feel is our home. (laughs) We want to live in a world like this. We don't want to live in a world which is crumbling and breaking uh, and killing people in earthquakes and tsunamis, and all of the other natural disasters that go on in the world. Why do those happen? Because the world is breaking down. You know, the world is dying. Just as humanity is dying, the world is dying. And one of the things that I think James Lovelock has has kind of clued into something here. We live, even in this world, with dilemmas. On the one hand, he says, uh, it's, we're not really guilty. Well, the Bible says in one sense you are guilty. But in another, way, in another way, I understand what he's saying. We're not really guilty. We didn't deliberately set out to heat up the world. And in one sense, the great privilege that we have of You know, the advent of coal and the industrial revolution and all that that did 
for the alleviation of poverty in so many ways, with all of the other, I recognize there's all sorts of other ramifications, but many great things happened as a result of industrial development. Many ills have been subdued. Many pains have been alleviated. Uh, many illnesses have been eradicated. It's not all bad. But in the middle of that good stuff, <laughs> we end up making it worse. Ever been in one of those situations where no matter what you seem to do, for all the good that you try to do, for all the improvements that you try to make, it's always tinged with a downside. There's always a little bit that's getting worse as a result of the good that you do. You know, that's humanity's plight. We do lots of good things, but it's always got a sort of dark edge to it, hasn't it? There's always something that doesn't quite make it as good as we hoped it would be. You know, the Bible is trying to remind us we can't, we can't save ourselves, we can't redeem ourselves, we can't get out of this with our own invention and skill. The amazing thing is, 2,000 years ago, through the Apostle Paul, before there was any understanding of planet, climate control, climate issues, all of these things, before science had really raised its head to the way that it has now, God spoke and gave Paul words to describe to us of the issues that the world is facing. He says this, for the creation was subject, subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. <laughs> from its bondage to decay. You know, before the scientists understood that the world was in decline, God was saying, the world is decaying. The world is decaying. And, and you know, scientists in the 20th century suddenly realize that this is the reality. Now, I, I accept that theologians down through the centuries have never really been able to explain fully what that meant. But now we can, can't we? Now we can understand the kind of decay that is being talked about. Yes, we might have understood in the past simply the decay is moral behavior and the decline of humanity and the fact that people are dying. Now we understand in a deeper, richer, more powerful way the Bible's true. 2,000 years ago, it says the world is decaying. It's breaking up. It's falling to bits. Resources are disappearing. It's getting hotter. Ice caps are melting. We're going to start losing cities through floods. The world is decaying. Lovelock's got it right. It's too late for us to save the planet. What he doesn't admit, what he doesn't understand, I don't think, is it was too late the very moment that humanity rebelled against God. That's when it was too late. Right at the very beginning of time. Not when we started filling our aerosols with CFCs. Not when we started burning coal. It was too late way back then. As soon as, as, soon as we rebelled, 
the world started decaying because God cursed it. Now we've got a dilemma, haven't we? Okay, so God loves this world that he created, but now we're saying that the world that he created is dying. It's decaying. It's crumbling. I thought God loved it. I thought God cared for it. But what's Paul just said? It's, pushed, it's kind of given over to decay, not to hopelessness, but in hope. We can't save this planet, but God can. Let me explain what that means. It was handed over to decay. It was handed over to this kind of downward slope of crumbling so that not only do human beings no longer live forever, they die, but the world doesn't last forever. It is on that trajectory to death as well. But it's looking forward. It's looking forward to being brought into the glorious freedom, which is also the experience of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, what kind of groaning? As in the pains of childbirth. That's a wonderful picture, actually. It's, it's groaning, it's kind of decaying, it's, it's feeling the pain, not to death, <laughs> but to birth, to something new. Wow. You know, I think, I believe with all my heart that the Christian faith is the only faith that really has something to say about this. You know, most faiths try to persuade us that, that our being, our spiritual experience is somehow by being taken out of this world by being transported to some sort of higher spiritual dimension. And yet, that's not what the Christian faith says. The Christian faith says, you enjoy living in this world to a greater or lesser extent, accepting the decline, accepting the pain. You love the world because you're made to live in a world like this. That's how God made you. And I know that it's decaying. But it's not decaying to disaster. It's decaying to something better. It's decaying to a point in the future where God is going to renew it. Where God is going to recreate it. Where God is going to reverse the crisis. Build something new. Yes, a world that looks like our world. But a world that is restored. Exactly the same, exactly the same way as the Bible says, you are not designed to be without a body. You're not designed to be some sort of spiritual being that finally gets released from this body and ends up in this ethereal kind of spirit world. You're designed to enjoy a body. And the final destiny for everybody who believes and trusts in God is that you're going to find yourself with a new recreated body. Something that you live in, something that you touch and breathe and smell and enjoy all of the wonderful pleasures of what it is to be a human being. 
it's a wonderful thing that the Christian faith describes. The Christian faith seems to me to alone say what you want, what you need, what you have deep down, uh, that, that desire for, it is the right thing because that's how God has made you. But that wouldn't that be a disaster if we were resurrected, if we received new bodies and we were placed in a world which continued to decline <laughs> and, and we're looking good and yet everything else is falling apart. Do you remember the film Highlander where the, uh, the hero of the film is he's, he's immortal. He stays the same age all the time and, and everything around him is, is decaying. Uh, it's it, the Queen song, Who Wants to Live Forever, appeared on that song, on that uh, movie, as he's holding his wife, who he married uh, when she was young, and he's kind of this uh, 20-year-old, kind of, you know, the epitome of what it is to be a Highland man, and, and she's beautif- young and beautiful, and as their life goes on, he stays the same, and she declines, And she gets older and older and older. And he stays this 20-something kind of hunk of a guy. And she ends up as this aged woman who finally dies in her arms. Imagine if that's the world that we were living in. Wouldn't that be a tragedy? Wouldn't it be a tragedy if God said, I'll I'll restore you, I'll redeem you, I'll, I'll resurrect you, I'll give you a new body. And by the way, you'll carry on living in a world which is in terminal decline. But the wonderful thing is, and I think that there is a greater depth to what we know as one of our most well-known verses. John chapter 3 and verse 16. Many of you will know it. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world Everything that he had designed, everything that he had conceived of, the perfect place for human beings to live in and enjoy his presence in. He says, I love it. I love what I've created. I love this people that I've created. I love the environment that I've placed them in. I love that they can enjoy it. I love that they can look out at a sunset and find it appealing. I love that they can smell uh, and taste and touch. I love what I've created. And he says, I love it so much that I'm giving my son to redeem it, to restore it. You know, in lots of ways, I think the, the green issue starts to touch on the very core of the Christian message in some ways. It says that we, we love to live in a good place as human beings. We need to preserve it. We need to, we need to enjoy it. We need to pass it on to future generations. But it also faces us up with the crisis of the reality of our existence. We can no more pass on a good planet as we can live ourselves forever. We can't do it. We can't save ourselves. 
But the Bible tells us that God loves it so much that he will restore it. He will redeem it. Peter says, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Sounds a crisis, but, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and earth, the home of righteousness. That's what Peter says. It's what he understands God's promise to be. There's going to come a time when, all, when this is stopped, just like your life, just like my life. That the life of this planet is not eternal. It's going to stop. But the promise of God is that he's going to build something new. I believe that we've got enough indications in the Bible to understand that so much of that new world is going to be recognizable to us. We're going to see it. There might be stuff there that will just be new that we'll never have conceived that as a possibility. But in general, it's going to be a world that we understand. I believe that because I see Jesus who died and rose again. I see that when he sat on a beach and he drank and he ate fish, he was sat with other people who were sat around that fire with him. I understand that his resurrected body was something which was recognizable. He enjoyed fellowship, relationship, conversation after death and after resurrection. All of that was important to him. He didn't become some different kind of creature. Why is that? Why is that? Because God cares about this environment. God cares about the world that he made. He makes us custodians, but we can no more be good custodians of this world as we can be good custodians of our own hearts by ourselves. And the problem's the same. We've rebelled. But the great news is that God has a future for those who trust and believe in him, which is filled with a recreation, a perfect world again, a new environment. What does Peter say? say? This new heaven and this new earth is the home of righteousness. Or put it another way. This is the home of God's goodness. This is the home of perfection. This is the home of good forever. When this is the home of good forever, nothing bad can ever happen again. Nothing bad can ever happen again. That new world isn't going to decline. We're not going to find ourselves aging in a new world. We're not going to find ourselves running out of resources in a new world. I don't know what our fuel will be. I don't know what our food will be. I just don't know all of those things. I don't need to know all of those things. I'm going to see it one day. I don't, I don't need to know. I can wait. I'm going to be enjoying it forever. So the rest of my life is not a long time to wait to see that. But I do know this, that we'll never run short. And we'll never get bored. 
How amazing is that? I'm going to live in a world which is satisfying. I'm going to live in a world which makes God's creation more appealing to me than I could ever understand in this world which is decaying, which is filled with beauty. You know, there's little pictures that we see in the Bible give us indications. Rivers, beautiful places, people. And some of us might think, oh man, there's going to be people in this new, this new, new earth. There's going to be people. I'm going to have to talk to them. I'm going to have to chat. I'm going to have to spend time with them. That's the last thing I want to do. Yeah, I can understand that. But you know what? We'll enjoy it. <laughs> it's going to be a beautiful place. Because God made a world which he loves. God made a world which he cares about so much that he's not going to write it off. He's going to recreate it. Does it matter? Well, I think we have a responsibility in this world to work now at doing what we can to prepare for the future. I know that we can't recreate this world, but that doesn't mean that we disregard it either. I think the Christian message is that we are to be ongoing custodians of the world which God has given us to care for. Uh, and maybe down through the centuries, there's been a kind of message that the Christian faith is all about bailing out of this world and waiting for the new one. We can't make it better, but we've got to care for it for as long as we can in the hope that God will make it better.